Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you that the weather is crisp and cool, reminding us of the freshness of your grace every morning. We need it so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. We pray that your spirit would be in and among us this morning, working in us, working in our hearts, convicting us of sin, encouraging us in the sufficiency of Christ, drawing us closer together as a body, and reminding us of the great vision that we have from you of a world redeemed and how you're doing that little by little, precept upon precept, as it says. We pray that this morning we'd be encouraged along that road, that um, as we see Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders, we would be reminded of the legacy of grace that we have from the cross and how it has traveled and been present with us since Christ's ascension and that we have a great hope for his second coming where it will be finalized and all things will be once again new. I pray for this time together. I pray that your, um, that your name would be honored in our discussion and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Acts 20. Starting in verse 17. Now last time, uh, well, what happened last time? What did we do? We did a big old travel log is what we did. We did, Paul went here, Paul went there, Paul went here. So we're basically working through Paul's wrapping up his third missionary journey in the east, uh, centered around Ephesus. He traveled a a lot of different places and, and there was sort of a rumored plot of the Jews. We didn't really get the details on that. And he ends up in this town called Miletus. And he sends for the Ephesian elders to come to him before his departure. He's going to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? What's going on there? Do you remember? Passover. There's Passover coming up. He wants to get there by the time of Passover for what? What's he, is he, there's a purpose in his mission to Jerusalem. He's taking relief. So he's going to all the churches, taking up an offering uh, for the suffering Christians in Jerusalem who are being heavily persecuted there. His goal is Rome. That's where he wants to go. And we know this because he says it in Romans, right? So it's kind of helpful. Um, So his desire is to go to Rome by way of Jerusalem. And he's taking an offering there. He's, he's, He's going to encourage the Christians in Jerusalem. And then last time we we discussed why Paul would be going to all the churches, encouraging them and, and doing all this stuff at the very end. It really brought out the heart of Paul for believers, for the for those that had been under his charge, and um, and the and the, uh, the the pastoral heart that he had as a as a model for those in leadership for ministry. So, after the farewell tour, comes the farewell address, and this is the third and final speech of Paul on his missionary journeys. Uh, the first we saw was delivered to a Jewish audience in uh, Pisidian Antioch in chapter 13. The second was to a Gentile audience. Remember the Mars Hill, that big, that big speech. And then this one is given to Christian leaders at Miletus. So you see these three types of discussion, three types of information that he's trying to convey to three different types of audiences. So um, given that Paul's going to leave them, and, then, and, then, and his belief is that he will not, they will not see his face again, is the language that he uses in this speech. What does he want to leave them with? 
What is it, what is he going to tell them as he departs? How do, how is he going to encourage them? How is he going to warn them? What do you do when you're leaving? What's important? So this address that he's going to give here that Luke records seems to follow a very Jewish pattern in both the Old and the New Testaments. Um, when I was reading this, I remember our discussion over Jacob's farewell address to the sons of Israel. Uh, you know, the whole thing of, of, uh, of how, he, how he did it. There was a pattern there. Uh, there are others. Joshua's farewell address, Samuel's farewell address. They follow this sort of pattern in how they talk to one another and these kinds of big epic conclusions to the story of, of that person. Uh, Jesus' words at the Last Supper follow this similar pattern. And there are some striking parallels to what we see here to what Paul does in his words to Timothy. The common features of these kinds of farewell addresses are the following. There's an assembling of the family or the, or the listeners together. Jacob, sons, come to me, right? Um, there's, a, there's a note that the speaker will soon leave or die. With Jacob, I'm about to go the way of all flesh. I'm about to go to my father's. Um, Joshua, same thing. Uh, there's sometimes an appeal to the personal example of the speaker. Don't see that too much with Jacob, but you do see that with others. The, uh, the appeal to their personal life. There's an exhortation to desired behavior. Do this. This is going to happen. Do this. And then there's a warning of, 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 uh, of trials or difficulties that are coming. In other words, these speeches follow the pattern of Deuteronomy which we will get there someday. Lord willing, the crick don't rise. Uh, so, let's look at it. Verse 17 uh, tells us that Miletus, uh, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came, he said to him, and there's a setup, calling the family and the leaders to him. So verse 18, You yourselves know... How I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourself know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So we see four really stages of this speech of Paul. First, it starts with his past example. He begins by pointing to the past example of his life. What characteristics does he point to at 18 through 21? What characteristics does he point to about his past example? What do you see? He lived among them. He lived among them. How? What does he say? He served the Lord with humility. Humility. He served the Lord with humility. Okay? That's kind of important. Paul seems to think that that's a pretty dominant characteristic of Christian life. We see that again in his, in his letters. Um, Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, oddly enough. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. It's kind of a hallmark Christian characteristic. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So humility is a big deal. What else does he say characterized his ministry? What else, does he, what else does he point to? Boldness of preaching the word. Boldness of preaching the word? What is, it, what is the language he uses? I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Okay. So there's a boldness. Did is there, uh, did he did he did he hold back anything? No. The whole gospel. There's a boldness and openness in proclaiming. Now that's an important point, isn't it? If it's open, and he's not holding anything back, contrast that to the wolves he talks about later. Right? The Gnostics are. Come with me. I've got this secret knowledge, but only my followers will know. For 1995 plus tax, you too can find, you know, that's, that's the idea that's coming and the warning. But Paul starts out with, I was open. I preached the same thing in public that I did from house to house. Um, he kept no secrets. He held nothing back. He preached the whole gospel. All right. What else? What else do you see? Who did he preach to? The Jews and the Greeks. What does that tell you? He is promiscuous in his proclamation of the gospel. Right? He doesn't hold back. And he preaches to everyone the same gospel. Jews and Greeks, slave and free, male and female, it's the same gospel. There's an inclusiveness in who it's conveyed, to whom it's conveyed, I guess, I don't know. Who we get it to, it don't matter what they look like, right? But it is exclusive. Yes? What's the exclusivity based on? Upon. What's based upon? Based on? It's still a preposition. Repentance and faith in whom? Jesus. Jesus alone, right? The, exclu the exclusivity is in the, the, the focus, the object 
of the faith, the person and work of Christ. That's where it's exclusive. Doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter who you are, but there's just one way. And so there's and, and there's an inclusivity in that Paul doesn't discriminate. He was he considered himself the apostle to the Gentiles, but he always went to the synagogues too, right? He always had that. <clears throat> in, Phili- in, in Philippi, he went to the women by the riverbed who were the unofficial uh, the unofficial synagogue of the place, right? So you see that he preached to everyone and anyone, both Jews and Greeks. Paul really believed his monotheism. God was God of all. And so he preached Christ to all. There wasn't a, a tribal God idea here. Um, all right. And it's, it's this gospel that Paul calls out here at the end of uh, verse 21 by example to the Ephesians, once again, what is it? What's the gospel? It's repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't separate that out. I made Jesus my Savior before I made Him my Lord. No. We put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes our Master. We don't master ourselves. He is our master. And our faith and our trust is in Him, that He's sufficient, that he's, it's good to obey Him because He's Lord. That's the gospel. And we strive toward that. So uh, Paul's example was a bar for these elders to strive for in humility, openness of the proclamation, and inclusiveness of the witness that he has. Look at verse 22 through 27. He talks about his future. He prepares them for his absence. Is there anything odd about what you see him say in verses 22 and 23? Do you see anything odd there? Constrained by the Spirit. He's constrained by the Spirit to do what? Go to Jerusalem. Then what does he say? He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but what? Except that... Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit to go to a place that the Holy Spirit tells me I'm going to be afflicted. Yay. Welcome to Christianity. Is that odd? Yes. Paul, are you sure you're hearing the Holy Spirit here? I mean, what what if this is just a t- bad taco? How do you know this is the Holy Spirit? What else is telling? What, who else is telling him you've got to go to Jerusalem and you're going to be afflicted under the power of the Holy Spirit in the in the first century church? What what what, what do we see? There was somebody that went up to him and said that. There are prophets in the church at that time that say, "Thus says the Lord." Right? Again, open canon at this time, still developing. We can talk about gifts and continuations and all that stuff another time. But at this point, there is a prophet, several prophets, that come to Paul saying, you got to go to Jerusalem, but the man who wears this belt is going to be afflicted. Well, that, my Jesus would never do that. Um, this is, you know, I, I, what, is, what's, what is this? I mean, I thought God wanted me to be um, self-actualized. 
I, I thought he wanted me to be happy. Here is a direct command to go to a place where you know you're going to be persecuted. And it's a direct command for him to do it. it, it is this inconsistent with anything else we've seen of the, of the calling of Paul? What did Jesus say to him right off the bat? I have to show him how much he will suffer for my case, for my name, for my sake. This is um, that's a pretty, pretty me, uh, how do you say it? Uh, not meager. That's not the word I'm looking for. It's pretty ominous calling. To know that I'm going into this to suffer. And how does he respond to that? What does he say? How does he view this going to Jerusalem to suffer? What does he say about it? He doesn't count his life of any value. For himself. Doesn't count his life as any value for himself. His concern is for his ministry. His concern is for his ministry. His concern is for the gospel being proclaimed in Jerusalem and in Rome. That's humility, isn't it? Isn't that the first characteristic we talked about? What am I? Who am I? In relationship to the, the proclamation of the gospel, the display of Jesus in a, in a fallen world. What do, what's my life worth? He doesn't... He doesn't um, he doesn't respond with um, this, this whole thing. How, 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 could, how could God ask me to do that? Are you sure you're talking to me about this? Don't you remember who I am? I've, I've written like, you know, 13 letters already to the churches, and it's, it's probably Scripture. I mean, Peter thinks so. So why would you send me into this? I'm kind of an important guy. He doesn't care. His whole motive is... That the, that the gospel would be proclaimed. Why does the Holy Spirit telling him he's going to suffer? I mean, that would seem like it be a, a um, counterproductive move by the Holy Spirit to tell him he's going to be suffering in Jerusalem and in Rome. It can almost be an encouragement as a, when he knows he's being afflicted and, and suffering, he knows he's on the right path. Ah, here are your signposts of your, 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 where you're, you want a sign? <laughs> <laughs> when you're suffering, it's not purposeless. Right? I'm bringing you here for this to make, to bear witness of the sufficiency of Jesus. That Jesus is enough, that you'll take the rod, you'll take the stones, you'll take the imprisonment, you'll take the beheading. Jesus is enough. All right. <clears throat> and we see this again uh, in, in, in Paul's letters. Um, you see that foot race analogy that he uses in this speech. You see that in uh, 2 Timothy where he says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He says that finishing the race is his goal here. Timothy, he testifies, hey, I did it. I finished. So uh, we have that theme running throughout the New Testament. Look at verse 25 and 27. He confirms his belief that they will not see him again, and he concludes that he is innocent of the blood of all because he has proclaimed the full will of God. What? What does that sound like? We talked about this before. Again, he's saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not charged with the, the sin or the, the um, unfaithfulness of any of you or of anyone here in Asia. Why? 
He's done all he was called to do. He's, it's not his job to turn people to God. His job is to share the gospel. He's, he's been faithful, right? He can't flip a switch in somebody's head. He harkens back to Ezekiel's watchman analogy. Remember, if you, if, you, if you see warning and you fail to blow the trumpet, anybody that dies from that is on you. If you see warning and blow the trumpet, then people are responsible for their own actions. That's the charge of a minister of the gospel of a Christian, really. We're all charged with, with, with sharing and being watchmen. Flee the wrath to come. And he's hearkening back to Ezekiel, and, he, and, he's, and he, he does hear what Samuel does in his farewell address. Did I take from any of you? Was I, was I immoral among you? No, you weren't. I am innocent of the blood of any of you. Right? He takes on that, that whole mantle of the, the prophet um, who has fulfilled his task. Incidentally, there's nothing secret about a trumpet. It's hard to mask those. I mean, I know they have these muters, but you still hear them. When God talks about the gospel being proclaimed, it's a trumpet blast. It's not a, come here, I've got some secret knowledge. There's none of that. It's a trumpet. That's the idea. Um, and so again, by way of example, he's calling them to this same determination in ministry. They need to be blowing a trumpet when he's gone. All right, look at verse 28 through 31. His warning and here we come to probably the most discussed statement in the farewell speech. He begins by warning of trials to come with a command. It's a basic charge to guard. Who's, who are they to guard? Who are they to guard? The flock? Themselves first, right? How can you guard the flock if you're not tending to your own heart? Put your own mask on first. Right. The tending to the flock comes from a heart that is being also chastened by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. Not allowing weeds to grow in. Not allowing things. But to model. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, Paul says. That's a big, big command. And yet, he's calling them to say the same thing to their people. Tend to yourselves. First, then tend to the flock of God. There is a Robert Murray McShane, I think is how you say his name, McShaney. I've heard it a couple of ways. He's the guy that does the little cool, you know, read the Bible in a year thing. The guy was 23 years old when he died. Amazing guy. Uh, he said that the most important thing for a pastor is his, for for the for the flock of a pastor is his own personal holiness. It's the pastor's own personal holiness. And then he follows that up later with another statement that is very important to the guys who are trying to do that, which is, uh, every time you take one look at yourself and realize how much you're failing in tending to your own heart, um, take ten looks at Christ. <laughs> because that's where we need to be. Again, it's the humility. That's, that's where that starts. It's the humility. I'm flawed. I need Jesus. And you do too. Watch me need Jesus and follow me in, watching, in, in needing Jesus. Right? So here he has this, this warning, keep yourselves and the flock. And notice again the imagery of the flock. This is, harkens back to what Jesus said in, in John especially. Uh, it harkens back to the Old Testament use of that, as God being the shepherd of Israel. They're delegated that whole shepherding um, role by God. 
the idea here is of, of an overseer. He uses the word overseer. That's not some kind of, you know, monarchical bishop that he has in mind. In fact, some scholars say it's not even a title he's using. It's more of a function that happens. Gifts and callings that are within a person that naturally, you know, happen in the church, whether they're recognized or not. Um, but overseer here seems to be synonymous with, with elder. So the first duty is watch yourself in humility, uh, personal holiness, and growth in the word. And second, watch over those under your care. And then look at this language. The church of God. How important is the church of God? What, how does Paul characterize the church of God? What does he say? Obtained with God's own blood. Now think about that statement. God's own blood. Does that bother you a little bit? Um, what's he talking about? Christ's death on the cross. He's talking clearly about the death of Christ. And yet he says, God... He doesn't say the son's blood. He says God's own blood. Uh, a lot of Protestants have a little bit of you know, right, twitching the right eye over this one. Some have translated this to be the blood of his own, purchased with the blood of his own, anticipating blood of his own son to kind of deal with the ambiguity there. And that's grammatically plausible. Um, but again, it's... Uh, Nowhere in the New Testament is this phrase used except here. Um, either way you translate it, it, it conveys a strong Trinitarian being of God idea. I, I think from uh, an apologetic standpoint, it's golden. The next time a Jehovah's Witness friend comes to your door... Does God bleed? Right? Take them here. It's uh, Acts 20. <laughs> Just take them through it. God's own blood. Um, again, he's talking about the Son, and, and it's understood, again, that Jesus is God here. This verse might not be in their Bible. Well... I mean, it might be like the JFK records, you know, kind of maybe, high, you know, redacted out. And, but anyway, the, the, the true records are, are here, and we'll go with that. So we have the shepherd imagery that is then contrasted with the wolves. And the, the wolves are these religious predators inside the church. And the letters that we read later confirm that this actually happened. Um, 2 Timothy 1.15, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus uh, and Hermogenes. I, I, when I read that in 1 Timothy, number one, it's hard to say those names. Number two, when I read that in 1 Timothy, I think of that statement by Elijah after Mount Carmel. I, even I, have survived. Only I serve you. Is this kind of despair kind of feel to it? And God says, ah, I've reserved 7,000 to myself. You're, you're good. 
We got you covered. Uh, don't worry about that. You just do what you do. And I think that some of, of what Paul's going on is just can you see the, into his heart a little bit this, this disappointment in the amount of apostasy that he's seeing. Revelation 2.2 2 says, To the church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So the warning that Paul gives to them, they put as you know, the prime directive, guard doctrine. And apparently they were doing it well. So Paul gives them a heads up on trials and persecutions and things within and without the church. And then he points to his hope for them. Verses 32 through 35. What hope does he have for them? He's leaving. He's not going to be able to watch over them, to guard them, to correct them. He's not going to be able to write letters like he did to Corinth and, and correct craziness that's going on. He's leaving it to these guys to do that. What hope does he have? I mean, Paul's kind of indispensable, isn't he? If he's gone, who's going to take his place? Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Who does he point to? And what does that tell us about our place in the church? Where's his hope rest? The members of that church. Does it? In God. Right? Okay, well, how does he, what's the language he uses? Let's, let's pull from the text. What is the language he uses? Yes, the answer is yes. I commend you to God. I commend you to God. John 17. Exactly. It's exactly the feel of this. It's John 17. And the word of his grace, your word is truth. Same kind of. He commends them to God. Because I don't, in my humanity, I'm feeling the. I need you to hold them, right? And so Paul also, realizing if Jesus felt this way, how much more Paul, uh, and he commends them to God, and, and what in particular? And the good feelings they have toward one another. The color of the carpet. But what does he commend them to for hope? The word of his grace. Notice the centrality of the word that Paul points to here, his grace. The grace of God is central. It's not secret knowledge, because he's proclaimed that clearly. It's not, uh, it's not um, you know, do we get our confession exactly right to where nobody else can assail it? We're struggling through this thing. It's the word of his grace. And it sanctifies those to whom it is applied. Christians are to be set apart by the word of God's grace. It's difficult. We don't want what we get. Or we don't get what we want, I guess is a better way to say that. Uh, we don't get what we want. We don't get what we want that we think will make our best life now. We are to depend upon the word of His grace. And it's difficult because it's His grace that He dispenses, and it's not dependent on us. But there's this promise that Paul points to. What's the promise? When it's all said and done, we'll receive an inheritance, right? A crown of glory. 
There's Jesus at the end. And it's worth the struggle. And it just seems really weird that after he goes there, he then talks about how he handled material goods. Or is it? What does he say? What is his, why, why recall this conduct regarding material possessions? He says, I didn't take anybody's silver, gold, or apparel. What, what, why, why go into this? Sounds like a bit of a warning against maybe those type of behaviors. And maybe he saw some of that. And kind of a, this is some things that can slip in. Yeah. I, just, yeah, go ahead. Contrasting the inheritance, oh, right, right. you know, the sanctif you know, you're being sanctified, you know, the Ephesians one inheritance, right? We're seated with Him in heavenly places, so we don't need, we don't need these things. We have a better one. Not that they're bad, but that you don't crave them. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. He's also looking at. It goes back to guard yourselves, right? It also doesn't mean that he didn't accept gifts from other believers. Sure. But he didn't covet right. the, the possessions of others. How did he get his own? How did he, how did he get his own material stuff? He earned it by technically. He earned it through a job, right? This is Paul's admonishment to all elders to own their own business. <laughs> just go out there, just be an entrepreneur. It's the no. He's be industrious, work, so that you're not fleecing the flock. You're not a burden. So that you're not a burden. Yeah. Yeah. So that you're not burdening the people with your own needs. Not only do they have to provide for themselves, which is hard enough, but then they got to provide for you. Don't do that. Because it sets people up to get more, um, to, to be, to be ha well, it, it compromises their teaching. If I say this, I'll get more money. I'll get a plane, you know. So, He's contrasting that with what the wolves do, which is fleece the flock. Why would he tell them that? Because he's giving them again an example. This is how you have to live when I'm gone. This is what it takes. Work. Not only work to support yourself so that you're not a burden on people, but work so that you can help the weak, he says. Like those in Jerusalem. Um, all right. Look at the last statement that he says here in, um, in verse uh, 35. And, and uh, yeah, he says, In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. I challenge you to find that in red in any of the Gospels. Interesting. It's not there. Uh, in fact, this statement uh, is a Greek statement, and it's in Jewish tradition. Substantively, it's in Christ's teaching, but and and it may be something that he said that just wasn't recorded in the Gospels. There is that too. But the point is, it's there as a as attributed to a doctrine of Christ. It's more blessed to give than to receive. For example, he did say uh, to them in Luke eighteen. Uh, one thing you still lack to the to the rich young ruler, say all that you have, uh, sell all that you have, and distribute to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. That's a little bit more fleshing out of 
more blessed to give than to receive. Why would he end here, though? Incidentally, uh, what does that tell you about how we read the Bible? If we see a statement like this that's attributed to Christ and we don't see it in the Gospels, what do we do with that? You weigh it, um, not word for word, but meaning. Okay. Against other places in Scripture and see if it contradicts or if it aligns. Scripture interprets Scripture, right? There's nothing contradictory about what Paul says here in the doctrines of what Jesus taught. Doctrinally, Jesus was right, right here. Right? Paul's not branching out into something new. Um, but there's a way to read history, and there's a way to read teaching, and narratives don't... I mean, John says it. If we were to write down everything that Jesus ever said and did, the world would be full of it. I mean, the world's full of it anyway, but the world would be full of the books, is what he's talking about. And here we have a statement attributed to Jesus that we don't get in the Gospels, but that doesn't mean he didn't say it. It just means that we don't have it in the Gospels. Substantively, we can see it. Because we know that Acts is inspired, we trust the, the author. Um, but he ends here. Why would he? This, this, is, uh, this is where he ends. Why does he end there? Why does he end there? I think it's partially a charge to the people that he's lifting up. He's, he's making them into leaders of the church. And so he wants this concept of you need to give. You, I have been the one giving the word, spoon-feeding it to you, and you've been receiving. But it's more blessed to give than to receive. So therefore, you need to give to the church the words of Jesus. What is it he says in Ephesians? Submit to one another under Christ. All Christian relationships are based upon service. How much more the leadership? You've got to model that, he's saying. Look at how I modeled it. I worked with my own hands to provide for myself. And I helped those who are weak with what I was able to, and those around me I supported with the work that I did. Um, why? Paul's a big guy. I mean, shouldn't he kind of sit back and let the checks roll in? He, he's the man. He's following his teaching as well. He's following, he's modeling what he's calling them to do. He's modeling what Jesus did. And it goes back to verse 24. I don't count my life any value or precious to myself. I don't, I don't see the need to puff up my bank account off of the gospel. Because it's about Christ, it's not about me. So verse 36 through 38, let's look at that and we'll, we'll conclude. And when he had said these things... He knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. That accompanied to the ship has an idea in the Greek of, of provided for him, gave food, money, whatever he needed to get, to get on his way. So you have him taking leave. And he, and he takes leave with a prayer, most scholars believe that most naturally would be a prayer of commencement of these elders and their leadership of the church in Paul's absence and prayer for Paul's safety on the journey and those kinds of things. Um, the language in this last passage paints a picture of a long and emotional farewell. Remember, Paul didn't go to Ephesus directly. He called the leaders to him. If he spent this long of time with the elders, with the leadership, how much more? He would have been into the next season 
you know, with him if he'd gone to actually to the city. The, the language here says falling upon his neck in, in the Greek. They kissed him as they fell upon his neck. That, that harkens back to that patriarchal idea of departure when, when, when guys, the, the, the patriarchs, when they depart, the end of a narrative, they'd, they'd fall upon the neck and weep. It's this long emotional display of love that they have for one another and the, and the anguish that they're feeling that they're going to be separated from that person. You see that language being used by Luke here. So that's Paul's farewell address. Uh, next time, we'll be... Uh, Mr. Paul goes to Jerusalem. We'll see that. So uh, that'll, be, that'll be kind of our next thing in chapter 21. Any questions? Any comments? I know we're running a little long. It's a big, big chunk. All right. There being no further business, let us pray. Father, thank you for the picture that we have here, the narrative that we have of the love of the Apostle Paul for the saints. And Lord, as we read this charge to the Ephesian elders, we realize that it's a charge to us as well, that we should strive to be humble, to be open in our proclamation of the gospel and inclusive in our witness that we're called to not be a burden on the body, but to support the body and to be, um, to be about helping the weak. God, would you give us hearts that look outward rather than inward all the time? Um, although there is healthy reflection, many times we, we stay there instead of looking around to see how we can benefit and help. And so we, we thank you for the times that by your grace we are able to be of service to others. I pray that that's the heartbeat of this class, of this church, would be one of serving others and honoring others more than we honor ourselves. That's what you've called us to do, and to imitate Christ and how he came to be a servant of all. Um, I pray that it would be a service out of love, not out of just stoic duty, but that the heart that we see here with, between Paul and these leaders would be reflected in us and our love for one another because of our love for you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.